Wow, we could close in prayer right now, but we're not going to. Uh, So, absolutely. Anybody here know who Ken Jennings is? Are you clapping? It just was a yes or no question. So, Ken Jennings, 2004, the most, the most winningness, uh, Jeopardy player in all of history, $2.5 million Jennings won playing Jeopardy, answering all those questions back in 2004. It took him 74 programs to do it. But guess what? Tomorrow night, James Holzhauer is going to do that. He's going to pass Jennings in half the time. I think it'll be a total of 33 programs that it will have taken him to get past uh, $2.5 million. Holzhauer tried for 12 years ago on the show, finally did. He's been killing it. He actually is the first Jeopardy contestant ever to uh, earn as much per program as Alex Trebek earns per program. <laughs> but I don't care how smart James Holzhauer is, I, 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 there. There are plenty of questions he doesn't know the answer to. I mean, uh, you sit down in a movie theater, which armrest is yours? How about that one, James? <laughs> Tell me that. Uh, what do you call a, a male ladybug? Huh? Huh? Why, why do cars park in driveways and drive on parkways? Huh? Why does the guy you give your money to to invest, why, why is he or she called a broker? <laughs> if somebody is, decides that they're indecisive, which are they? Huh? Huh? Are they decisive about indes- being indecisive or, or, or not? Uh, if if uh, corn oil is made from corn and vegetable oil is made from vegetables, what's baby oil made of? <laughs> James. So we keep going. Uh, I think I've sufficiently proved that I can stump James. Uh, actually, trivial questions, those are fun things to talk about, but questions play a much bigger role in our lives than just curiosity. You came with some this morning. Some you've articulated already, some you haven't yet. But when we start grappling with the, the, the wonder and the worry and the intricacy and the Uh, the significance of what we sense that this day is about. Some of the questions that come forward are far more than trivial. This past week, I've told you about Thornton Wilder's Our Town before. You know it's a favorite play of mine. Well, I just was rereading it. Uh, It's it's not a book. This is just the, uh, the script. And I've had it on my desk all week. And Part of it is because of some, what some of you know is a question that I love that Emily, at the end of the story, it's about Grover's Corners, New Hampshire at the turn of last century. Just what's life about? You know, how, how did their day-to-day uh, journeys go? But at the end, Emily, one of the main characters dies, and some of you are thinking, don't tell me that, I haven't read it yet. It's been out since 1938, so you've, um, I'm not worried about a spoiler, but she asked this question as she's reflecting on her life, on her journey that's now over, and she says, she asks this question, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute? That's not a Jeopardy question. 
That's not a question that determines whether or not you win some money in a game show. It's a question of whether or not you and I grapple with the essence of who we are as human beings, which is why we're taking a journey through the Gospel of John and we're calling it Awaken. This teaching series that will ebb and flow, we'll take breaks here or there, but going through John's gospel because the heartbeat of the gospel is not to inform our religiosity, but to awaken our humanity. He's after your heart. He's after your, your personhood. He's after your, who you and I are as human beings, and that's why Jesus came. John 10.10, 10. this is a review for most of you, but if you're new, he says, pure and simple. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. Have it to the full. It's not positive mental attitude. It's not rearranging uh, the things in my mind just to kind of do a self-actualization. It's a restorative statement that he's come to restore what was originally created, and the disciples got this. The disciples were gripped by it. They weren't gripped by Jesus' ideology or his morality, even though both were brilliant. What they were gripped by is this was the first fully alive human being to walk on the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. They wouldn't have said it like that before the resurrection, but they started putting it together. So it's why when John was an old man, at the end of his life, the only surviving disciple, all the others had given their lives and, and martyred him. And they didn't give their lives because this was a cool religious guru. They were following him. They gave their lives in Peter's words because he alone had the words of eternal life. And so John, at the end of his gospel, he writes, these things I've written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 20, verse 31. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That question that Emily asks, it's beyond the trivial. Jesus wants us to ask, do human beings realize our life while we're living it? What does that look like? And so as we're going through this, this journey, here's where we are. We're in chapter three. We're about to finish it up. Jesus is, is introduced in John 1.1 as the essence of the universe. And we start seeing his earthly ministry unfold, and a very confusing event takes place in chapter 2, where we introduced a gumball machine and a table. It's the instance of him clearing the temple, going into the court of the Gentiles that meant, were meant to bring people in from the outside, and meant to help the, the poor, and they had turned it into a religious business. That Jesus reserved his greatest ire and anger for the religiosity of the day. Now, he did, did not condemn their embrace and engagement and study of Scripture, but he said the problem is in John 5, and we'll get to that, he says is that you don't let the Scriptures lead you to me. I'm where you find life. We spent some time, and this will be the, our, our, I know this will be very sad for you, but this will be your last view of the gumball machine for a while in the table. But the reason I've got these up here is to plan an image. So many of us think of our relationship, of, of this whole notion of engaging with Christianity as a, a, a religious transaction. And we put a chart up about the difference between religiosity and pursuing religiosity practicing it mindlessly and how that differs from pursuing a relationship. You see, in religiosity, I do my religious things and hope God will give me what I want. 
You know, if I do church, if I dress this way, if I go through this ritual. And so it's this notion of it's all on the outside. And my view of church is one of consumerism. And I, I kind of run over other people. That's what they did in the court of the Gentiles. They didn't care about the other people, the outside. They just care about their own deal. And there was very great pride because there's a small view of God that says, the, view, the, the distance between God and me is so small, I can bridge it with my little piddly acts and get what I want. But Jesus, and the reason he was so angry is because that's not why he came. The essence of this life that he wants you and me to experience is relational. 71 times in John's gospel and his epistles, he mentions the word life that's translated in English life, only about 15 refer to heart beating, lung breathing. The rest is this life of God, this life that we were intended for, the life that's supernatural that comes. And at its heartbeat, it's a relationship. A relationship in which Christianity is seen as something that starts internally. It's not external practice first, it's internal transformation. My view of church is an aspect of calling. You and I are here. You know why we're here today? We were called together. And there's something that is taking place this morning that will never be repeated this side of the new heaven and the new earth. We were called here and will be called out to be Jesus and care for others as Jesus cares for us. And we're galvanized by a high view of God that realizes we cannot, it doesn't matter how many little religious acts we do, we can't bridge the gap. It's only by grace because of a high view of God. So Nicodemus, religious leader, snuck to Jesus in the, in, in, during the night. Uh, it wasn't that good for his career. He sensed there was something going on and he was part of this culture, but he said, Jesus, let's talk. And Jesus says, you want to come over here? You've got to be born again because I've come not to make irreligious people religious, but dead people alive. I came to resurrect you as a human being. The moment that you trust me, you'll be born again. You might look the same on the outside, but there will be an internal transformation because what I've come to do is usher in a new creation, restoring what was once intended. And that culminated with a great statement in John 3.16, for God so loved you and you and you that He gave His one and only Son. And you and you and you and you, every one of us, that whoever would believe not would become impressively religious but authentically alive. Should not perish, but have eternal life. So we pick up the action at the end of chapter three. If you've got your Bible turned there, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'll give you one. Just go to the welcome desk afterwards. Verse 22, John three, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now remember, there's John the Baptist and the Apostle John who wrote John's gospel. Both Johns are gonna be referred to here. The first part of this passage is John the Baptist. The second part is, is John the, the Apostle giving commentary. An argument developed between some of John the Baptist's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, he's referring to Jesus here, he says, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing, everybody's going to him. In other words, aren't you concerned about that? 
He's got his religious following. He's a competitor. What's the deal? And John the Baptist replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bride... There's a smile on this man's face as he's saying this. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. That guy on the other side of the Jordan that you're talking about, I, I must become less. And now John the apostle continues, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. And the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So this religiosity thing, what happens between God and me is transactional. If I'm good enough, He'll be good to me. That's why there's so many bitter religious people, because they felt like they fulfilled their part of the bargain, and He didn't deliver the, the flavor of gumball that they wanted. That's transactional. This is relational. Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door, Revelation 3.20. I don't want to come in and eat with you. I want to have a meal with you. So what happens at meals? In the Middle East, but it's true for all of us, a meal is an act of intimacy. It's where exchange takes place. We've lost that in our culture a lot. Just go to a restaurant and see people have forks in one hand and phones in another. And you wonder, why are they with the other people at that table? But for this exchange to happen, a number of things occur, but one of them is questions. The questions over here are transactional questions. The questions here are relational. It's, it's not just looking for trivial answers. It's, it's wanting to engage in the exploration. And great relationships always have great questions. And they aren't always accompanied by an exact answer, but it's the processing of the questions. Enrico Fermi was a nuclear physicist back in the middle part of last century. He grew up in Italy. There's a place up in Chicago I've been to called Fermi Lab, which is... Uh, just does amazing things I can't even get my head around on, uh, on the uh, nuclear particles and the acceleration of those in experiments. Well, when Fermi was a, a little boy and he was going to school, his mother, he said, every day would greet him when he came home from school. You know what you would ask him? Well, what, what, what do most parents ask their kids when they come home from school? Well, my parents were, did you get in any trouble today? That was their question. But usually they say, did you learn anything? Interesting today. What would you learn today? Enrico Fermi said his mother every day would ask him a very different question. She would say, Enrico, 
Did you ask any good questions today? Part of this relationship is asking good questions. Let me give you four. When I go back to John the Baptist and the Apostle John and I let the echo of their testimony cover 2,000 years and settle into my day today. Here are four questions that come out of this text. You want to know what this relationship looks like? It'll involve a lot more questions, but here are four. And they're daily questions. The first one is, who am I to you? Jesus, who am I to you today? I live in a culture, and so do you, that says I'm an accident. I'm a lucky blob of protoplasm that started in a cosmic petri dish and is headed to oblivion. Verse 27 of John 3, John the Baptist replied, a person can receive only what is given them, two words, from heaven. What he is alluding to there, it's a circumlocution of referring to all of who God is, meaning that our our origin is from somewhere, it's from God, and we are created. Now, we live in this culture that has seen too much, some of this is at the feet of the church, too much of religiosity, not enough relationship, and a lot of honest people have called, called our bluff and said, I'm not sure I want that. There might be some of you, by the way, and if so, you're in good company, hopefully with us here at Northam, but especially with Jesus, because he didn't have a whole lot of time for this either. He saw through it. He called people beyond that. The tragedy is people reject the inoculated form of Christianity and move to not believing instead of saying, bypass that and head to the real thing. And in the secularized culture, we're told we're evolutionary accidents. And as a result, you cannot logically have meaning in spite of what some would say. Richard Dawkins, very brilliant, hostile as well, opponent of Christianity, an atheist. He was in an interview with Skeptic Magazine, and they asked him uh, whether his worldview was the same as Shakespeare's Macbeth, that life is a tale told by an idiot filled with sound and fury, signifying nothing. Yes, Dawkins replied, at a sort of cosmic level it is, but what I want to guard against is people therefore getting nihilistic in their personal lives. I I don't see any reason for that at all. You can have a very happy and fulfilled personal life even if you think that the universe at large is a tale told by an idiot. Our experience would tell us differently, but at the same time, that is our hope. We're an accident headed to Bolivian, but let's come up with some meaning. You've got to fabricate it, which is what Albert Camus, the existential French uh, philosopher, said. The only two options when you're really honest about us being cosmic accidents is to either authenticate your own existence, meaning make up some purpose, or suicide. It's one of the two. Because if I was an accident and I'm headed to oblivion, this is not meaningful. But something screams within my soul and yours that there is meaning to be had today. Where does it come from? Jesus invites me to this table and says, from above. Who am I to you? He says, Matt, you've come from above. You've come from my Father's heart. You are 
You fearfully, what's the psalmist saying? Psalm 139, you fashioned me, you knit me in my mother's womb. My inmost being, you've created. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. John the Baptist says he must become greater and I'll become smaller. That's not a woe is me, Uriah Heap, I'm nothing type thing, you know, a Dickens Uriah Heap, I'm, I'm, I'm self-deprecating. That's a statement of dignity and purpose. I am authored. When I'm authored, that means somebody had an intent about me. I've been created and therefore I'm created for a purpose. And so in the midst of a culture that says we're cosmic accidents, we have to say, is this from above or not? R.C. Sproul used to love to talk about the fact that there are only three options to the origins of the universe. Number one, it's self-created, which is a logical absurdity. If that's not the case, and there are only two options left. Number one, that uh, the universe itself is self-existent and eternal. When all the laws of, of, uh, of the universe would be contrary to that. One of the most prominent would be uh, the law of thermodynamics. It says the universe is cooling off. So in other words, it's not static. It's not staying the same. Something is happening. And if, it is, if it's cooling down, it hasn't been eternal. The only third option is we are created by something that is self-existent and eternal. And John the Baptist says, we're from above. And in the midst of a world that tries to jolt me with accusations of meaninglessness and as a result just medicate yourself and go for the gusto and run over everybody else. When I sit down at this table with Jesus, I say, who am I to you? And he says, you're from above. And I love you. The prophet Isaiah says, we're clay. We're clay in the potter's hand. Our culture has gotten it backwards. Isaiah 29, verse 16, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? No. At that table, this is what's said. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We're the clay. You're the potter. Who am I to you, Jesus? He says, you're the clay, I'm the potter. And get ready when you start trusting me to shape your restoration and to do something significant with today. You'll be the work. You'll be the work of my hand. So look at what happens with John as a result of having this posture. Go back to what we just read, verse 27. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. There's that humility that, that's there, but it's, it's, it's a liberating humility. Go on down to verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Do you see the liberation and the security in that? I belong. Out here I'm wandering. At that table, I belong. He keeps going. He says, the friend who attends, look at the purpose he's exemplifying here, who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for the bridegroom. Look at the joy. It's full of joy. 
So that's the biggie. Then these others just fall into place. Second question, are you enough? With what I'm dealing with, you came in this morning and there, were, there is something in your life and in mine about which I am asking, are you enough? And here's some, my tendency way too often is to go wailing away from the table saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not, he's not enough. He's not enough. As opposed to engaging in intimacy in the midst of my challenges, and I was doing that right over here. Are you enough? He loves that question. He doesn't get nervous, by the way. He doesn't think, oh, I was hoping you weren't going to ask that. Go back to the text. John the Baptist has something to say to you when you came in wondering if he's enough. He's got two words for you, by the way. Verse 31, he says, the one who comes from above is two words. What are they? Above all. What are they? Above all. Are you enough? He says, I'm above all. What do you think he means by that? There's been a lot of time in the Greek on this one, and I think it means above all. And actually, he repeats it. He says, the one who is from the earth, which is referring to finitude, limitation, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He's above all. He doesn't mind the saying, are you enough? Because every challenge I've got in a fallen world, his enoughness is going to taste differently. But it's... It's here that's worked out in relationship, not transactionally said, come here, Jesus, fix this. He, he addresses my lack with his enoughness in the context of intimate relationship and exchange. But I need to remember who I'm relating with. Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God. We looked at this even last week. This is not a, he's not a religious guru. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in them all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, where thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And as I relate with that, the mere question of Jesus, do you think you've got this? Is exposed. It's not ridiculed, but it's exposed with a statement, Matt, I'm above all. That vending machine approach, Jesus is really privileged that we're finally paying some attention to him. Because you know what, for crying out loud in this culture, so few people acknowledge him, and he's saying, oh, I'm so glad I've got somebody else in my campaign who will support my re-election to the universe. Over here, it's none of that. He says, I'm above all. Which is why I love what uh, Annie Dillard, she's, one of, she's a favorite author of mine, a classic pilgrim at Tinker Creek, I read every couple of years, but uh, 
She's written a book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. And in it, she begins referring to this. Do we really understand, those of us who are in churches, let's bring that up. Why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? It's what I loved about what Marcia, when Marcia and I were talking about what happens. There's something that happens corporately here. Do we realize what is taking place when we come together and all together are acknowledging that He's enough? We're not coming and just kind of kowtowing to a little religious mascot and saying, hope you feel better. We are coming before the King of all creation. On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke when you and I come in here? We're not tiptoeing in to the trivial, we are coming to bow before He who is both transcendent and eminent. He is both infinite and personal. He's both great and good. She goes on to say, or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. I think this is probably the best description of this vending machine right here. It's madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake up someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I am here, Matt, to be enough for you, to revive your brokenness, your frailty, to strengthen it. But keep asking the question, because it's good to process that on a daily basis. But there's a third question. It's not just who I am, who am I to you, and not just are you enough, but do you have anything to say to me today? What is it that you want to speak into my life today? He's already spoken. Was I listening? In verse 32, 33, 34, 35, John gives this commentary. He says, he testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever is accepted is certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, there's an aspect of being sent that Jesus embodies. He's been sent to speak. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through Him also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Do you have anything to say to me today? He'll point to creation. Are you paying attention? 
to my glory. It points to my conscience. He points to my present and past community of fellow followers of Jesus. He points to the Scriptures, the Word. And He says all of that. He points to Himself and says, let's talk. I love the story of the Native American who was walking with a friend downtown New York City. He'd never been to the city before. He was from the Southwest. And he stopped his friend. It was during rush hour. Thousands of people around, cars going everywhere. He said, shh, you hear that? And he said, what do you mean, shh? This is New York City. You can't shh in New York City. And he said, shh, listen. So what is it? He said, it's a cricket. He said, there's no cricket on Fifth Avenue. He walks about 20, 30 feet. And right by a small little pitiful looking bush, he leans down, picks up, and there's a cricket. And his friend still can't hear it chirp. He says, but listen, it's beautiful, isn't it? He says, how did you hear that? In the midst of New York, you can't hear that. And his, his Native American friend looked at him, and then he reached in his pocket. He pulled out some change. He threw it on the sidewalk. And people three blocks in every direction turned to look. And the Native American said, people tend to hear what they're listening for. Were you listening for Jesus this morning when you walked in here? Because if we're listening for Him, He's not here to play a game. I mean, he slayed me over there during that good, our, our, our good, good father song. Because this week, I don't know if, if you ever have those weeks that your to-do list is 80 miles long and the amount of time you've got is about three feet. And come stumbling into a Sunday morning to engage with you. And he says, man, this is what I want you to hear. I'm your Abba. We'll deal with the to-do lists and all the frustrations that you're experiencing as a result of that later. Let's experience life together, which is what this is. And it's actually the fourth question. How do you want me to respond today, Jesus? Who am I to you? I'm not an accident. I'm created by you. I got purpose. Are you enough? Okay, you're from, you're above all. Yes. Do you have anything to say to me today? Okay, I'm listening. I'm in your word. I'm listening to the community. I'm engaging in worship, paying attention to your spirit. But what, how do you want me to respond? Verse 36, you see the word that comes up over and over. Believe. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe. What's believing? You guys remember the chair? Believing in a chair? Okay, thank you. I believe you. I believe that strong, you're strong enough to hold me. You're, you're relevant to my need, and I'm actually now going to obey. What's that look like practically? 
this life that Jesus says I receive as a result of believing, he summarizes it in John 17, 3. We've looked at it over and over, and we cannot look at it too much. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on up. Before we leave here, we're going to taste that verse. I'm at this table, and so are you, to experience his life. Not to practice religiosity. You know how to spell his life? You know how to spell eternal life? John 17, 3, he says, this is how you spell eternal life. R-E-L-A. T-I-O-N-S-H-I-P. The beauty of heaven is we will no longer be encumbered by a fallen body and a fallen world. But right now, he says, whatever you're dealing with, and you guys, I don't know what you're grappling with. Maybe it's an 80-mile to-do list and three yards of time. Or maybe it's something far more significant brokenness in a relationship with another human being, maybe a fear, a financial mountain, a job crisis, a medical trauma, I don't know. But Jesus says, come have a seat. Let's experience my life together. So I say, Jesus, who am I to you? He reminds me. I matter. Are you enough? Yeah, let's talk about it. So what do you have to say to me today? Let's talk about that too. How do you want me to respond? Receive my life.